We are finally here. The fourth phase of Slick Tear Slip. I wish that I had the temperament or the internal strength and stamina to crank these out one after the other in rapid succession for you, my Slick Tear Slippers. But these recordings, they force me to recall some of the most powerful and poignant moments in my favorite films. This is no small toll that it takes emotionally on your falsetto profit. But we have finally reached the end, the last phase of this little mini-segment within the segment of Slick Flick Pick. I sometimes struggle to recall which recording I'm working on for which book in my Chemohawk Sessions library, but I always make sure that before it is edited and before it is posted, that I was not wasting my time nor your time. And my buddy Othello, he is what you could call an emotional support animal for moi, because my life is better, richer, happier, and freer since Othello entered it. I have now been the proud owner of Othello, my bicolor, otherworldly, cute cat creature, for over 10 years. That is a long time. Some marriages do not even last that long. But it is a bittersweet realization. This will be the last phase. But I will never leave you in the lurch if I can help it. So I hope you know that there is more content coming your way after phase four, and it will be similar, but fundamentally different. It will be of the same bloodline, but a different family member. It will be something that you will be able to relate to and yet look forward to with the same level of enthusiasm. Could I be any more vague? Absolutely, I could. But for purposes of now, today, I will discuss the remaining scenes from the remaining films that really made an impact when they were first experienced. And now, so many years later, the impact, it hits sometimes a little differently. It hits with a different force. It strikes from a different angle. But it is undeniable, undoubtable, indubitable that it still resonates in a way that is worth repeating. Howdy, slick tier slippers. You can prize, constitute, and coalesce my throngs of both intelligent, emotional, and emotionally intelligent cinematic fanatic fans. And you are legion. Is there a method to your leaking peepers? Or is that visual, teary-eyed visage more situational, perhaps erratic? Some scenes and sequences in these slick flicks are so dramatic, climactic, emphatic, and traumatic. You have no choice but to bear these emotionally bludgeoning burdens traumatic. Feel these sensations thematic. Acknowledge those very same feelings might be far from pragmatic. In fact, at times, problematic. From the painfully rheumatic to cathartic and ecstatic. It is matter over mind, or rather somatic. My singular passion for these emotive films remains dogmatic, enigmatic, but for all things cinematic, I remain charismatic. And in my prep work for these well-thought-out oral presentations, both candidly passionate and wildly systematic. Allow me to pose a question. Have you ever felt the surge of salt water 
surface, behind the crest of your peepers, eager to burst, release, escape, and glide down the contours of your countenance until it drips gently but repeatedly off the pronounced end of your unblemished cheek as it slides confidently, unapologetically, off the dimple of your chin and down towards gravity and the great unfucking known. See, I am not a stranger to wearing emotion on my face when I am faced with the right film, the right moments, and under the right circumstances. And really, I see it as a gift that continues to give, because as you are reminded of your humanity and to feel things, other people will pick up on this, and you will pay it forward, and this is a great collective exercise that we can all engage in from time to time. What I personally fancy about a good goddamn cry is there is candor to the wet confetti. No untruth, half-truth, or three-quarter lie. Eyes speak in truthful tongues. They are too overt, too unsubtle to be sly. Do not be fooled, though. In the film, there will be blood with Daniel Day-Lewis. There is a very powerful scene, almost halfway through, where he is lying in a church to get his way. But that is not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about good old-fashioned, honest, human emotion. I strongly urge you, my cinematic fanatics, to partake in this legit shit truth, the unadulterated cry. So let that salty fluid flow and permit at least one sincere, slick tear slip before you die. Films, particularly these slick flick picks, fascinate, they educate, they entertain, and excite, but on rare and rewarding occasion, prompt us to feel, chuckle, occasionally chortle, question life, comfort our strife, force us to reflect and correct crooked intellect, whether taking a taxing load off or tacking on burdensome emotional heft. Sometimes these flicks are so tenacious, telling and true, there is nothing left to emote but a well-earned, unapologetic goddamn cry. The right slick flick pick can morph into a slick tear slip and gift you metaphorical cinematic wings, make you feel you can fly. However, others tear at your insides, break your heart, punch your gut, clutch your drawn breath, make you cry. The following Chemohawk Sessions broadcast, the last of this kind, will encompass the final four of my top 16 slick, teary-eye-inducing moments from Slick Flick Pick. There is a sweetness, you see, in sympathetic machinations, and in the subsequent sincere emotional reactions and ramifications to poignant cinematic stimuli. The four films discussed today speaking to the specific melancholy, inspirational, or moving moments, and beyond, are in chronological order. The Game, 1997, Goodwill Hunting, 1998, A Lot Like Love, 2005, and Out of the Furnace, 2013. We begin with The Game, this is number 13. This has previously been a slick flick pick. It is one of the greatest films I've ever seen. It is worthy of rewatch upon rewatch. It is one of the greatest and most underrated David Fincher flicks. Michael Douglas is in top form here, and he happens to be one of my most treasured actors. The scenes in question. Really, the whole movie is building up to this cathartic moment that you finally get of release and relief at the very end of the film. About 65% through the film, you get this apology, and it's an apology between a former cold man, Nicholas Van Orton apologizing to his ex-wife. Now his ex-wife 
is not the cookie cutter, oh, you know, she's a bitch, they were very hostile, and it was a bitter divorce. Everything that we've seen about this ex-wife, she's very kind, and she's very warm, and she still makes an effort to be thoughtful and considerate to Mr. Van Orton, even though he's done everything to drive and push her away. But of course, this will set up some excellent fodder for we get this final scene where he jumps off of the building and purportedly you think that he's going to die, but that's when the final twist begins and you realize that this was one of those elaborate interventions that is told in such a clever and artistic way by David Fincher. But this is a wholly original film. There is no source material and that's what makes it so poignant and it makes it so special. But this is not an award-winning movie, but it still lingers long on the minds and in our collective memories. I love Michael Douglas, and I love his characterization of Nicholas Van Orton here. Make no mistake, this is a film that even if you are already used to the twists, and you already see it coming for whatever reason, maybe you're preternaturally prescient, and you're able to be a prophet for all of these narrative matters. But you also watch this movie for the emotional payoff. And it is absolutely fucking outstanding, as Wham Bam Cam would say. But here's the scene that sets the stage for what's to come at the end. So we have Michael Douglas talking to his ex-wife, and he is in dire straits, and he very much needs her help. Nikki, talk to me. You're scaring me. I don't even know what you're saying. I'm sorry, Liz. I don't mean to. I'm sorry. I've been thinking the last couple of days. I've had some spare time. And I wanted to tell you that I understand why you left me, and I know that I resented it. I want to apologize to you for shutting you out, for not being there. I hope you can forgive me. And then she says, as you would expect, by way of how her character has been shown, there's nothing to forgive. It's such a powerful moment, because not only is Michael Douglas an extraordinary actor, but what I'm realizing about these cinematic odysseys that I go on is if an actor is trying to force the moment, or if they're over-emoting, this will kill a scene. It will kill a scene faster than that one repugnant individual at the watering hole in the office who failed to use deodorant the previous night, and they are stinking up the room, and you will just go thirsty, or you will drink toilet water before you will get anywhere in the vicinity of said individual. But here, it is a believable transformation. When I see these films where the character makes a transformation, it may not have to be a 180. It could be a 45-degree turn. It can be much more subtle and complex than just, well, I was like in American History X, I was a neo-Nazi, and now I am a benevolent soul. It doesn't have to be that extreme. But if you're going to have something occur that would be antithetical to that character's base personality, it has to be believed, or else it falls short. Well, here... Michael Douglas was so good at being cold, callous, and calculating. We are on this very disturbing journey with him, and we observe what occurs in his life. And so many things are so impractical and fantastical that he has really been put through the emotional ringer. And as that has taken a toll, he has slowly but deliberately come to the conclusion that he has not been acting properly. So when he apologizes to his wife, it feels earned, and he actually is able to extract so much sympathy from the audience when he has purposefully played an unlikable character. And so this really sets up the groundwork for the end where Michael Douglas 
suspects that he has shot his brother and killed him. And so he's responsible for his brother's death atop this rooftop. And then, much like his father before him, who committed suicide by jumping off the roof of their mansion estate, he follows in likely fashion. He jumps off the roof, and you are suspecting, as the audience, and this is David Fincher, who is not a stranger to putting on a dark and demented end to a film, much like Seven, for example, or Fight Club in a way. But here, something wonderful and staggering and unexpected happens where you're thinking that the twist was he killed his brother and now he's going to meet the same fate as his father and that's how the film will end. No, he falls through safety glass, his life is spared, and then he is faced with the realization in front of his brother who is very much alive and like a hundred partygoers that everything that occurred was intentional, it was orchestrated, and it was meant to create a tangible change in the trajectory of Michael Douglas's emotional journey. And it works. He's completely exhausted. He's beaten down. He starts crying in front of a colossal audience. And all of this is completely contradictory to everything that we've seen throughout most of the film. So it is a believable transformation. And so there he is standing there in a deep shock. And he sees all these people standing there in party attire. And his brother is standing there very much alive. What is this? It's your birthday present. And then the two brothers, Michael Douglas and Sean Penn, embrace in an emotional hug. I had to do something. You were being such an asshole. And Michael Douglas is crying. But it works because you feel as the audience that you can finally take a much-earned, well-deserved breath. But that's not even it. He is finally prompted to take risks emotionally with people that he otherwise never would have. And I believe that he never would have, except for the conditions and the outcome of this game or this contest that he was suckered into. And so he goes out to talk to Christine, who he has had an attraction to. He would have never wanted to pursue anything that would have possibly led to emotional stakes. But he approaches her outside of her cab. I didn't get a chance to say goodbye. I never did ask your name, did I? It's Claire. So you're catching a plane? Yeah, we have a gig starting next week in Australia. You're going to shear some more sheep, huh? Just a walk on this time. Well, when you get back, maybe we could have some dinner. And then she stumbles over where she's from because she's changed her identity so many times. But finally, she says to him, would you like to have a coffee with me at the airport? And they're playing Jefferson Airplane, White Rabbit, and he gives this devilish smirk. And you know goddamn well that he's going to be accompanying her to some coffee at the airport while they wait for her flight. And I took it to mean... This is a new and optimistic chapter in his otherwise sordid and sad life. But it's these films that really take you through the ringer, where you have to go on a really painful, exploratory journey in order to come out the other side changed. And he sells the fact that he's not the same person that he was at the beginning of the film. I love this film. I love these scenes. And it always makes me have an emotional catharsis when I see him break down in front of his brother. Very, very well done by David Fincher. Number 14 is Goodwill Hunting from 1998. And it's obviously the it's not your fault scene with Robin Williams and Matt Damon. This is an extremely impressive film. Everybody liked it that I've ever talked to that's seen it. They've usually seen it multiple times. Matt Damon is devastatingly effective. And Williams ain't no fucking slouch when it comes to wearing dramatic armor and dispensing cathartic justice. But this film is very much a coming-of-age, 
from the old blue collar, tough Boston neighborhood. And it's about a man who is trying to figure out who he is, how he wants to act, what it means, and where he's going to gallivant through the rest of his years. And this is all happening in an interesting time in Will Hunting's life. But this, of course, was a psychological drama. Ben Affleck and Matt Damon got quite a bit of praise for their acting, but also this won the Academy Award for Best Screenplay, and it was written for the screen by Matt Damon and Ben Affleck. Of course, Robin Williams wins for Best Supporting Actor, very well deserved, and Matt Damon and Minnie Driver are nominated for Best Actor and Best Actress. Miss Misery by Elliot Smith was nominated for Best Original Song. I sometimes come upon these life observations that make me believe there's more going on than meets the naked eye. And as I was doing research for this film, what I found so crazy is that Elliot Smith was behind a lot of the songs that went into this film's soundtrack, and he committed suicide. Well, obviously, Robin Williams was a linchpin in the success of this film, and then he would go on to commit suicide as well. So there's a lot of tragedy that is tied to this film. Now, what came first, the tragic life or this catalyst event and being involved in this very emotionally inflammatory film? It's hard to know and we'll never know, but it's worth noting that there's a lot of power that seems to come from this film or at least be adjacent to it. But Roger Ebert, he liked the film. He gave it three stars. It got very good reviews. Quentin Curtis of the Daily Telegraph said Williams' performance brought sharpness and tenderness calling the film a crowd-pleaser with bags of charm to spare. It doesn't bear thinking too much about its message. Damon and Affleck's writing has real wit and vigor and some depth. Enjoyable characters. There isn't a whole lot of movie to take home with you. Many will wake the next morning wondering why, with all the talent on hand, it amounts to so little in the end. Okay, so that's like the minority opinion. This is a very touching film, and it's a very powerful film, and I dare say it's a very important film, because it's about a journey that many people can relate to. And even if you can't relate to it personally, you know people that this is affected in a very real way. Ebert would go on to say, it must be heartbreaking to be able to appreciate true genius and yet fall short of it yourself. A man can spend his entire life studying to be a mathematician and yet watch helplessly while a high school dropout, a janitor, scribbles down the answers to questions the professor is baffled by. This film is a story of how this kid's life edges towards self-destruction and how four people try to haul him back. The outcome of the movie is fairly predictable, so is the whole story, but it's the individual moments, not the payoff, that make it so effective. And then finally, here is a character who has four friends who love and want to help him, and he's threatened by their help because it means abandoning all of his old, sick, dysfunctional defense mechanisms. As Louis Armstrong once said, there's some folks that, if they don't know, you can't tell them. This movie is about whether Will is one of those folks. The scene is really a payoff from everything that came before it, where you got this battle of wits and wills. You know, I think the best puns are unintentional, but every once in a while, and hopefully in this case, it makes you wonder, when I say battle of wills, was that by design? I will not reveal the secret. I will let you surmise the answer yourself. Matt Damon and Robin Williams intrigue each other. And instead of just telling the other person, why they're so valuable, or why they find them so curious. They do the typical tough, masculine, from Boston, blue-collar, upbringing-type emotional defense mechanism where they have to feel each other out. And there are scenes between them that are extraordinarily tense. And what's fascinating about this film 
is the scenes that strike the hardest are just where you have Will and you have Sean in this office trying to figure each other out. It's two guys in this dank room in the basement and they're just talking things out. And that is so majestically fucking powerful. It takes me back to one of the last episodes of The Shield where you got Vic Mackey and Claudette Wims and they're just sitting in an interrogation room. No guns, no shootouts, no explosions, no theatricality. It's just two people talking in a room. And that is what is so engrossing. And it's so heartbreaking. So when Sean finally gets him to face his metaphorical demons and to finally let it out in a supremely purging, powerful way, you are finally realizing that he was officially gotten to and Sean was able to get through to him in ways that nobody else could. Yes, there were some nudges along the way, but when he gets him to admit to himself that the abuse that he suffered throughout his life was not his fault, there's really no other way to say it. So it's like Brad Pitt, you know, what's in the box? People poke fun of that line because he's not using multisyllabic words to say what he wants to say, but he's not trying to be a scholar. He's not trying to be a spokesperson for academia. He is someone who's been emotionally eviscerated, and those are the only words that he has left. So using simple words and crying and hugging his counselor, it just really works in the ways that it was intended to work and beyond. And that's why the film is all leading to this moment, because you know that once they hug and that chapter can be closed, he's able to embrace the remainder of his life. You believe the conclusion because it was not an easy journey to get to that final step. It's an extraordinarily powerful moment. It's a very moving moment. And anybody that watches that scene and feels nothing emotionally, or there's a devoid of recognition, I don't know how to converse with those people. But it really worked for me, and it can work for you if you fucking let it. But it's a great film. I think I overwatched it when it was new, and I haven't seen it in years. But it is a very good film, and that is a phenomenal scene, and it gets me teary-eyed every fucking time. I did find this article, It's Not Your Fault, on Hanging Out and Healing and Goodwill Hunting. This is by Roxana Haddadi, and this was written about three years ago. But this is a really good article because it's very in-depth, and it compares the music from Elliot Smith, the musician-songwriter who ultimately committed suicide. It talks about those lyrics from some of the music that he used for the film, and it relates it to what will ultimately happen in the character's journeys. I know you'd rather see me gone than to see me the way that I am. So that's Miss Misery by Elliot Smith. Phenomenal songwriter, by the way. I will share a little bit of information, not all of it, from this article, because I really lucked out to find this collection of words. At the 70th Academy Awards, with the nine nominations for Goodwill Hunting up against the 11 for Titanic, Williams went home as the Best Supporting Actor, and Damon and Affleck as authors of the Best Original Screenplay. The boyhood friends' paths forward were set, and as each of their careers took off, they would intermittently appear on screen together in the years that come. Now, Matt Damon, I believe, is a superior actor to Ben Affleck. That's my opinion. And it says, you know, he would get overshadowed for a time because of his flashier action work with Paul Greengrass, Ridley Scott, and Steven Soderbergh. But Goodwill Hunting is actually really damn good. Right now, when the world around us feels particularly overwhelming and the pressures of our everyday routines seem outside of our control. The healing nature of this film is a bomb. The film's poignant exploration of living and loving is soothing at any time, but especially these times, 
when we yearn for comfort more than ever, and when it's not your fault, might be exactly what we need to hear. Goodwill Hunting is lyrically directed, efficiently written, side-splittingly funny, quietly devastating. And it talks a little bit about this first exchange between Will and Sean, and it's very well done. Their initial meeting is defined by the same sort of smart Alex standoffishness that Will has used for years to his advantage. But it's Sean's volatility, how he chokes Will from mocking Sean's dead wife and Sean's accompanying grief, that intrigues the younger man. The cinematographer show us the damage inflicted by Will by mirroring the composition of a painting in Sean's office, an image he created of a man navigating his tiny robot through a coming storm. This, of course, is laying the groundwork for this scene that you get at the end with a hug and why it still lingers to me to this day. And one of the nudges that occurs along the way is, of course, from the Ben Affleck character who does a good job in this film. I prefer him as a director to an actor, but he really does well here, particularly in this scene, what I call the winning lottery ticket scene. So this is what she says. Just as Sean stunned Will into silence, though, with his query about what Will envisions for himself, so does Chucky, the brother-in-arms, the retarded gorilla, who would take a baseball bat to anyone for Will, the consigliere who gets Will a job on a demolition crew, puts aside the braggadocio bullshit to bear his deepest desire to Will. The result is a quiet reversal of the film's entire perspective. Our sympathy is no longer devoted entirely to Will, to a young man who so desires a normal life, but also extends to Chucky, the best friend who must finally speak his peace. Chucky knows what normalcy can be, and he resents the patronizing way Will has coveted it. I think that there's a lot you can draw from this film. It's really just kind of what you need at the time. I recently had a conversation with my mother-in-law talking about the different seasons that friendships can have. It's something that I've struggled with most of my life, where I believe that if you have a friend, then you have a friend for life, and you will stay in contact, and you will both work towards this collective bargain of trying to help each other and support each other and fight for each other. But the reality is people fall off and those seasons, however much we may resist it, irrevocably change at times. And so I think that these films, you get out of them sometimes what you need out of them, sometimes what you're seeking. But really in this film, I think there's something for just about everyone. And for me, it was that ending where the two embrace after this long and torturous journey that I feel like it is earned and it leaves you feeling like there are possibilities. I highly recommend the film and I think it's a way better film than Titanic. One man's opinion. Number 15 is very unusual for me. In a way, it almost doesn't fit with these other films that have been selected both in this phase and the prior phases. But this is a lighthearted romantic comedy that I actually found surprisingly sentimental and at times deep and emotionally penetrative. But it's called A Lot Like Love from 2005. And I know you're probably already rolling your fucking eyes because it's a romantic comedy. It's Ashton Kutcher, of all places, and Amanda Peet. Now, I will say that Amanda Peet is one of the most naturally gorgeous women, and I've always thought so. But she has such an intensity in her peepers that this scene that I'm about to speak to is very, very conceivable. It's very powerful. And I think it might be one of the most quietly devastating scenes of polite rejection that I've ever seen in my life. And it's also a likable scene, and it's a powerful scene, and it's memorable because you don't see a lot of serenades. There was a serenade in this great film called Breaking Away, which I've already talked about, 
at least with these slick tear slips. But for this film, it's just two likable characters that have colossal chemistry and how life circumstances are forcing them to stay at arm's length or worse. And it's all about shitty timing, the concept of serendipity, and the calamity of life, and how it can get in the way of your relationships if you are too much of a, a sissy wimp pussy pushover and you don't take life by the reins. But it's a very good scene, and I remember liking it at the time, and I remember watching just a, a recent clip of it on YouTube and thinking, you know what? God damn it, this is worthy of Slick Tear Slip. But this is a botched serenade attempt, really. I am not a bleeding romantic in any way, shape, or fucking form, but this pricked me in an observable way. And of course, it is Ashton Kutcher trying to get back in the good graces and express his desire for Amanda Pete, who again, is downright fetching. But it's to Bon Jovi's I'll Be There For You. And it's just so good. Ashton Kutcher is actually really good here as well. Some of the comments that are on YouTube. Such a great movie, such a great scene. Amanda's gestures in the scene are awesome. The most romantic movie ever, so underrated. I would totally melt if a guy played and sang for me. Ashton does a great solo of that song. Very nicely done. Well, the song is, you know, fine. Take, take or leave the fucking song. Store it in a fucking sepulcher deep in a tomb in a place that will never be discovered. I don't care. But it's the dialogue that follows and the emotion that Amanda is wearing on her face and how fucking quietly devastating it is. So you have Ashton Kutcher coming to her totally on his sleeve and putting every conceivable card on the emotional table and then her wrecking it, but not because she wants to. It's just the circumstances that define where they are in their lives now. So he starts off, just don't say anything because I'll lose my nerve. He plays the song <laughs> and then you get this unexpected passerby saying, you suck, as everybody is giving him a standing ovation from their respective apartments. But he says, I know you like Bon Jovi, so I don't. This is where we get to the good shit. Emily, I'm flat broke. I don't have a job. I don't have a plan. And I know I'm, I'm probably six years too late. But will you give me strike one back? Now, this is a moment where if he said something like, I love you, I need you, blah, 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 that would have fucking obliterated the scene for me. What really makes it special is he says, but will you give me strike one back? Okay, he's serenading the girl, so it's clear he already has intense feelings for her. She's in tears, so it's obvious that she is reciprocal to those feelings. So they don't have to say, I love you. Ooh, I'm only gooey for you. Baby, no. It's just, will you give me strike one back? Which is alluding to a former time in their life, a long time ago, where that's something that only he and she would get. I like to play those little tests every now and then, where you have some code words, or you have some inside jokes with people, so that if they were taken over by a pod person, or an alien life form, or a fucking doppelganger, you would know if they were the real version of themselves, or a carbonless copy. You would know. But he sees that she has a ring on, and the expression changes demonstrably. You're married. I'm engaged. Do you want to come in? No. I think I need the air. And then she says, I, I have to get the baby. His reaction when he thinks the child is hers is so relatable. But then she's like, oh, I'm sitting for Michelle. So she's looking after her sister's baby. Okay, much fucking better. But then it's, you sound really good. And then finally he says, well, guess when I'm an old man, I'll never have to wonder what if. I feel for him in this moment. And what would be so two-dimensional? 
would be to make her an unlikable character and to make her the villainous in this particular scene. But she's not. She just tried to move on and she got engaged. She can't be on his emotional plane at this time. But worry not, you slick tear slippers, because the ending is everything you want it to be and fucking more. Finally, we have number 16, my final official slick tear slip scene, and it's out of the furnace, 2013. This is Christian Bale in another marvelous role, and it's Zoe Zaldana. Now, this is a scene, what I call the rustic bridge scene, where you just have so much pain and nobody is overacting. Both performances are extraordinary, and I would have been just fine if the scene was extended another couple of minutes. Watching Christian Bale talk to his former lady, who is no longer his lady, and she is pregnant with another man's baby after he got out of jail for something that really could have happened to anyone is just so fucking heart-wrenching. And Christian Bale is always good. Here he's extraordinary. And she is meeting him emotional blow for emotional blow. Out of the Furnace is that kind of little sleeper movie that no one saw and no one talks about. But it was a 2013 American crime drama film directed by Scott Cooper. Now this will be a future slick flick pick. There are no qualms about that. But it was a fantastic film, one of my favorites. I remember when I saw the commercials, I knew I wanted to see this goddamn thing. It did not disappoint. It is an incredibly sad movie. It's a very melancholy movie, but it does have its charms, and it has a phenomenal ending, and it has an incredible cast, and it's so chock full of talent. This review, Ebert liked the movie okay, he wasn't crazy about it, but this is what he had to say about it, and then I will share with you the coveted scene. Cooper's film has every element that bro tragedy requires. Decent, sold, yet emotionally constipated men toiling in working-class professions. A criminal subplot that leads to a grave offense and a desire for vengeance. Bale has played a number of intriguingly closed-off characters, including Bruce Wayne. But his emotionally numb De Niro thing doesn't cut it here, however affecting the actor is close up. Okay, I agree with the second part, I do not agree with the first part. And then of course it pays a lot of tribute to Casey Affleck and how good he is here, as is Woody Harrelson. Most of the other actors are wasted, Ebert says, including Saldana who's stuck in a generic girlfriend role. And then, this is where I give it back to Ebert, because I agree with him wholeheartedly, though she has one effective, painful scene with Bale on a wooden bridge. There you have it. I think it's a phenomenal film, and it really takes you to a place and a time and a, and a people that I don't get to see very often. And it's like the coal workers, it's the miners, in this case it's in the state of Pennsylvania, very blue-collar, very tortured, very hardworking. There's only glimmers and shimmers of hope, but this film really captures it well. And I pay that to the acting and to the great direction of Scott Cooper, who has a real eye and a real penchant for detail. But this is the actual dialogue on the bridge scene. You're staying at your dad's? Yeah. You know, I'm trying to give it some life. I went to his funeral. I know. Thank you. That was important to me. Are you back at the mill? Just can't get enough of it, you know? I hear they're going to close it. Yeah, looks like it. You know, cheaper to get steel from China. You're waiting for them to talk about something other than these initial pleasantries, and they just organically slide right the fuck into it. God, I miss you so much. I miss you so much. I was hoping that we could work it out, you know? The things that were keeping us apart. And take that next step is something I want to do with you. Because I can't be without you, Lena. I can't. You're waiting for her 
to say something, you already know it's going to be devastating because you can read it on her face. We're not even to the best part yet. I'm pregnant, she says, you know, dropping that landmine bombshell explosive device on him. Okay. Wow. Wow. That's, that's wonderful news. It is. When she says it is in an interrogatory way, and when he says that that's wonderful news, I think it's just so fucking fantastic because he's trying to keep things positive and he probably at some level is happy that she is happier in life, but it's the same tale as old as time that she's with somebody else and it is not his child. And he's having to confront that and know that his life, this trajectory that he saw for himself when he got on the bridge is no longer in the realm of possibility. And then she's expecting some horrific reaction because she knows him. And when she asks it is, she's just so available to go whichever way he's going to go. And I think she detects what he's trying to do. There's a whole fuck of a lot going on in that moment. Yeah, that's wonderful news. I'm real happy for you, Lena. I really am. You're going to be a hell of a mom. A hell of a mom. She can't even take it. He's saying all the right things, but she knows that that's not what he feels. And she just cannot be around it. I have to go. She gives him a goodbye hug. Who knows what the fuck will happen with those two, but they're not going to be together. And it's just so painful. It's so nuanced. And Christian Bale, I have already said, I think is one of the greatest actors, if not the greatest actor of my generation. But I believe that she is holding her fucking own next to him, step for step, reaction by reaction, and it is just such a sight to see. I love the film. I highly recommend the film. Now, the contenders, we have The Thin Red Line, which is one of the best intellectual, philosophical war films I've ever seen. It's right up there with Saving Private Ryan, but in a different way. It's less straightforward, it's more philosophical, and it's harder to decipher. It's more metaphorical, there's more visuals that are used by way of artistic expression. But Witt's performance by Jim Caviezel is one of the greatest performances I've ever seen. And it begins with this music, and when he's AWOL with a fellow soldier, and all of his dialogues with Sean Penn are just extraordinary. And in the beginning scene, seeing these two AWOL soldiers in World War II hanging out with these peaceful villagers, the music, the score, the way that they're showing and not telling, it is a perfect harmony of music, cinematography, acting, and there's a real earnestness to the dialogue. And there's so many memorable lines, it's hard to pick just a handful. But really, it's the exchanges between Jim Caviezel and Sean Penn that really stick with me. And I just love where they're talking in this senseless combat on one of these Japanese islands, Guadalcanal. And I just love these exchanges where wit is just on another plane, and that's by design. Normally, you'd be court-martialed, but I worked a deal for you. Gotta consider yourself lucky. I'm sending you to a disciplinary outfit. You'll be a stretcher-bearer. You'll be taking care of the wounded. I can take anything you dish out. I'm twice the man you are. In this world, a man himself is nothing. And there ain't no world but this one. And then Jim gives one of the greatest rebuttals in cinematic history. You're wrong there, Top. I've seen another world. Sometimes I think it was just my imagination. Well, then you've seen things I never will. There's another exchange between these two. And they're in the middle of this island. They've lost a lot of their comrades. And it's just so deep, penetrating, philosophical, and satisfying. This army's gonna kill you. If you were smart, you'd take care of yourself. There's nothing you can do for anybody else. You're just running into a burning house. 
where nobody can be saved. What difference do you think you can make, one single man in all this madness? If you die, it's going to be for nothing. There's not some other world out there where everything is going to be okay. There's just this one, just this rock. He is leveling with him in ways that few people that you will meet in your life will level with you. But he's leveling with him, but there's no hint of malevolence to it. He really cares about this soldier that's under his command. And then finally, this last scene between Wit and between Welsh, played by Sean Penn. Hey Wit, who are you making trouble for today? What do you mean? Well, isn't that what you like to do? Turn left when they say go right? Why are you such a troublemaker, Wit? You care about me, don't you, Sergeant? I always felt like you did. Why do you always make yourself out like a rock? One day I can come up and talk to you. By the next day, it's like we never even met. Lonely house now. You ever get lonely? Only around people. Only around people. You still living in the beautiful light, are you? How do you do that? You're a magician to me. I still see a spark in you. It's this running personality collision where one character is pragmatic and he's seen a lot of combat and he's over it. The other guy is kind of walking around like Andy fucking Dufresne in the Shawshank Redemption, where he is not letting these suffocating circumstances break his optimism. And it's actually extremely refreshing to watch. I love the film. It's almost a three-hour slog, but it is so fucking satisfying. I highly recommend The Thin Red Line. Please do watch it. And if you want to do a double feature, watch it with Saving Private Ryan. They came out extremely close together in the 90s, and they're both a very satisfying watch. Now, the end of Gone Baby Gone, that will be not only a slick flick pick, but a slick page flip. But the last scene with the baby, where you have Casey Affleck, I talk about that in my slick flick pick. But when I finally learn what's really happening in that scene, where Helene is not going to change at all, she's still a shitty skell of a human, and how this daughter of hers is stuck with her, and now he's having to face the bitter reality that maybe he made an erroneous decision, and it's going to forever impact the upbringing, and the livelihood of this girl, once I learned the real message, that scene was so emotionally crippling. It is a fantastic scene. I wouldn't say that I get choked up. It's just a beautiful way to end the film. It's a perfect ending. And with a thin red line, or I'm sorry, the thin red line, I get where I feel warm and I feel something, but I don't ball my eyes out like I do with the end of Moneyball, for example. Finally, we have this scene in this film called Get Carter, which is actually a remake with Sylvester Stallone from an original film with Michael Caine. Anybody who postulates that Sylvester Stallone is simply an action hero and he cannot act is full of fucking shit. If you have seen Rocky or First Blood, the first Rambo film, or several of the later Rocky films like Creed, I can tell you without any hesitation that with the right material, Sylvester Stallone completely dominates the screen, but in an intellectual and an emotional way. He is extremely wise and empathetic. And in this film, although the film is okay, I may very well do a slick flick pick. I haven't decided. But on this standalone scene with Rachel Lee Cook, he's on the rooftop, and he's like her uncle of sorts. It's this really sordid, twisted family affair, but he cares about her in a lot of ways that are above board and that are healthy. And he is a debt collector. He is really kind of a shitty criminal in the criminal underworld, but he does have a code that carries him through the film. He also is fantastic. I can't believe that I briefly forgot to mention. He is fantastic in Copland. 
Sylvester Stallone is a heavyweight actor. He just has chosen throughout most of his career to make the quick money grabs with action films, which his action films are pretty tip-top as well, a lot of them. But he can really fucking act, and I think that this scene is so perfect. But basically, he has already learned that this girl, Miss Cook, was assaulted when she was way too young, and she was so innocent and impressionable. And it's a very harrowing scene. It's a difficult scene to watch, just them talking about it. But he's so subtle and sly stone that it is not overacted. It's not forced upon us, but they both bring their A-game. And it is so fucking phenomenal. So he starts off on the rooftop. It's a very overcast day. And the whole film is really kind of covered in these blues and these grays and these sterile colors. Hey, hey, I saw that. She's like reaching for a cigarette or she's trying to sneak a cigarette. She asks him, what happened to your face? A couple of guys jumped me on the elevator. Really? No, I slipped, you know? It happens sometimes when you get older. What are you going to do? Well, I'm going to be taken off today. Why? It just worked out that way. For good? For a while. Doreen, before I go, I just want to tell you that I think you're a special girl. I mean that. In just 48 hours, I could see that. Things happen, you know? We make mistakes. We fall down. We get into trouble. It happens to everybody. But it doesn't mean everything that happened yesterday has to happen today. You don't want to do it like me and spend your whole life looking back. We can't change our history. We just have to go past it, right past it, up ahead to something new. It's yours if you want it. I tell you, your mother loves you. No matter what you think, she loves you. Maybe you got things you have to talk to her about, some problems, whatever. You should talk to her. She'll listen. So this is his way of delicately acknowledging he knows more than he should know. And you're waiting for her, like, okay, the ball is in her court. The chess piece is on her side of the board. How is she going to respond? And she's not even looking at him, but the honesty and the gritty reality of what has happened to her comes full circle. And it's just so devastating what she says. I don't know what happened. He, uh, he worked with my dad. He was really nice. I thought it was going to be fun. Cool, you know? We had some champagne. He asked if I wanted to go to this party. You should have seen my friend's faces. I don't even remember what happened. I just remember not being able to move much. I remember wanting to leave, wanting it to stop, wanting to go home. It's all my fault. No, it's not your fault. None of this is your fault. You gotta believe that. Now, I know that's similar because Goodwill Hunting, it's the whole it's not your fault speech, but you hear about things like victims blaming themselves. You hear about survivor's guilt. I find guilt, much like rage or joy, to be one of the strongest emotions in the human arsenal. And what really fucking sucks donkey balls and llama cock about guilt is that it's so exhausting and it's such a useless emotion because feeling guilt about something in the vast majority of circumstances i believe it's not going to alter reality guilt makes you feel bad and generally it's in a helpless paradigm where you're just left feeling like shit and feeling guilty who other than masochists or people that are emotionally crosswired who wants to feel guilty all the time? To me, it's functionless, and it's repetitive, and it's fucking pathetic at times. But this scene is so powerful. Sylvester Stallone is killing it, Rachel Lee Cook is slaying it, and he's the uncle that you want to have. He's A-O-fucking-K. It was a joy to share some of these very poignant 
and emotionally satisfying moments. I feel like I have opened myself up. Granted, this is a vocal presentation, but a lot of thought behind the scenes went into selecting and articulating this information. So I hope that you see these scenes the way I do, or at least the way that is in the same family. When our beloved character, final girl or guy, has lost, won, or tied, been beaten, bent, or otherwise broken inside, if they're either unexpectedly or in a long foretold and choreographed way died, we have exhausted our emotions. Our last truthful, touching, telling tears cried. Our tear ducts and cheeks both cleaned and dried. But in this cathartic release and from this emotional joyride, we feel renewed, rejuvenated, and alive inside. We loyally remained by our favorite actor's side. With this cathartic cause, we have allied. Though that took on us a toll, we are spent and tried. We were, in fact, honest with our thoughts, inclinations, preferences. We never, to ourselves, lied. And along with the cleansing release of salty tears, our time was well applied. In a new cinematic catharsis, we can seek sharp-eyed. And in our loved mates, cats, particularly you, Othello, compadres, and kin, we can confide in them that which awes, stupefies, floors, yet never bores us, with peepers freshly lubricated pride. Slick tear slip has proven quite an affecting and cathartic expenditure of my time, rewarding like a long-lasting, substantive relationship, not a forgotten fling. Prepare yourself for the next project on my Chemohawk Sessions shelf. Dry your eyes for your first oral surprise in the televised streaming realm as tears stream along down the contours of your chin where they belong throughout the most telling and tragic moments in each of these selections with serialized, slick-eyed surprise. That's right, we did some film scenes, and now we're going to do some streaming television show scenes. Can you handle it? Can your emotions handle it? Will you master your emotional intelligence? Coming so very soon to an ear canal near you, perhaps even your own, your favorite wolf in a sheep onesie. Toodles for now, you slick tear slippers. Balsetto Prophet out.